The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I actually think it's a huge black eye for Silicon Valley. That's just my East Coast bias, probably. But let's check in with Dan Ives. He's a senior uh, equity analyst at Wedbush Securities. Uh, Dan, you follow Microsoft closely. You follow the tech space uh, as, as closely as anyone else out here. We've had a few days here to kind of digest what is a very fluid situation still to this minute. What are some of your takeaways here? I mean, if you have a clown show that runs the board, this is what happens. And essentially, this is four individuals that took down a $90 billion company. And I think when you look what happened over the weekend, they were essentially like seven-year-olds playing checkers at the kids' table. <laughs> and then the Della, the grandmaster chess wizard, basically was three steps ahead, took all them, and now essentially this is a shell company where all the assets essentially moved to Microsoft. And is it at all a surprise that Altman so quickly? It, it seems to me it makes sense, but it seems a like very swift move for Microsoft to swoop in and snag Altman that quickly. Well, Altman's the golden child of AI. I mean, no different than Zuckerberg to social media, Musk to electric vehicles. He was the asset. And of him, Brockman, and some of the top leaders, the last thing that could have happened, the worst case would have been them going to an Amazon, a Google, an Apple because there's just massive, massive demand for these assets in terms of not just them, but the 700 open AI employees. And look, this is a board. I mean, they're going to be dealing with legal issues for probably you know the next decade because of this. But the reality is they took down a $90 billion company by themselves. You know, with a little bit of hindsight, Dan, do we know why they did what they did? What was the core issue here for the actions on Friday. I mean, Paul, you hit on it. It's typical 408 Valley, you know, where they, you know, whether it was egos, political, not communication. I mean, Altman became the face of AI. It's a board that probably felt slated, you know, obviously went back and forth. And then I do think they underestimated the ramifications. I mean, even when you look at Eli, chief scientist, co-founder, one of the four voted was key in getting them fired. Then all of a sudden yesterday morning says, oh, he actually regrets it. Paul, that's like, that's literally like burning someone's house down. 
and then the next day coming with a Hallmark card and a, and a piece of chocolate saying, I'm sorry. All right. So one of my issues or one of my questions, I guess, Dan, is, I mean, the, Sam Altman and, and others are obviously key to this whole AI technology, but doesn't the intellectual property reside at OpenAI? Doesn't the entity control it and have most of the value as opposed to what's behind or what's between Sam Altman's ears? Before Microsoft, yes, after no. I mean, now essentially that technology is baked into Microsoft's ecosystem. And that was part of the deal, you know, when my, even though it's 49%, if you look how Microsoft actually structured the deal, I mean, OpenAI, that technology is essentially embedded in Microsoft. Mm, okay. That's why they recognize that the value of OpenAI is basically it goes up and down the elevators. If they come to Microsoft, that OpenAI essentially is a board with a third-rate interim CEO, former Twitch, and that's it. And, and now they'll just be spending all their time with lawyers. And Dan, what happens next? And how do you incorporate Sam Altman into your valuation of Microsoft? Stock was up 2% yesterday, but is not really continuing to add to those gains. I mean, when we went to bed midnight Sunday, I mean, Microsoft could have been down eight, 10% if, if Nadella didn't swoop in because that was the fear. Now it's essentially, I'd say Microsoft's in a stronger position today. You saw the reaction yesterday than it was on Friday. It's a win-win because either way, the legal, the global pressures, the board, their lawyers, they're going to resign. Then it's actually a better situation than it was before Friday because you don't have a JV circus show board there blocking things. And then if they just sit there, then they'll all just go to Microsoft and it's essentially a shell company. But it goes back to they were playing checkers like eight year olds and Adele was playing chess. <laughs> so do you think Sam Altman, I mean, I don't know him. I haven't even seen him interviewed. There's a guy, I mean, for us who aren't tech folks, really under the radar. Can he work and can these people work in a big corporate organization like Microsoft? Can he report to somebody, some other executive, whether it's Nadella or someone else? Oh, it's a great question. And in Microsoft, I mean, they're very well versed in doing this in terms of almost an entrepreneur atmosphere in that Redmond headquarters on campus. Just leave them alone, do what they do. I mean, it's similar to the success they've had with LinkedIn and other assets. That's part of that DNA in Microsoft, which speaks to why Allman and Brockman signed up so quickly. And now, either way, it's a win-win for Microsoft. They are positioned for a Nadella, just a phenomenal PR you know, show yesterday because that's just putting more and more pressure on the board because either whichever which way it happens, it's a win for Microsoft. Yep. So Dan, from your perspective, what, what do you think is a better structure for uh, this AI uh, investment in technology to continue to uh, flourish? Is it for Sam to go back and his team to go back to OpenAI with a revamped board? Would that be better than sitting within the halls of Microsoft? How, how do you think that should play out? You get rid of the four circus show board members. Then you put in Brett Taylor, Marissa Meyer. You have someone from Microsoft, a legit board. Governance is there. I think that would also give comfort to the beltway, you know, just given how important this technology is. And then they go back, it's actually better than before. That's the ideal situation. That's what everyone thought was gonna happen Sunday. And then it just turned into what's going to be an infamous, probably a Netflix documentary at one point in terms of what happened here. 
you mentioned Altman could have gone to Amazon, Google, Alphabet, and others. How does this move impact those companies and their ambitions within AI? Off yesterday, basically offering to match any offer out there for AI engineers. I mean, there's massive, massive demand. Call it 50x for every one employee. Google, Amazon, they're going to be aggressive trying to get assets because of this air pocket. Look, it definitely gives them a window that they could gain some share, get some engineers, get some developers that maybe they couldn't have gotten before with significant pay packages. This is going to be... You know, a friend, look, right now, if you're an AI developer engineer in the Valley, I mean, you're probably drinking mimosas in the morning. (laughs) So, Dan, I mean, just again, I'm an old school East Coast Wall Street guy. It's almost embarrassing for Silicon Valley. I mean, I would almost be like, God, this past four or five days makes us look like a bunch of kids here. Um, what What are you hearing out there? For the weekend, I mean, from people, you know, very close to the situation, it's an embarrassment. It's a historical embarrassment. And it just shows what happens when you don't have adults in the room and some of these political sort of back and forth. This is what happened. But that's also why you need the Nadellas and Microsofts to basically swoop in and make sure that this goes no further. And that's why right now the board backs against the wall. They're probably on their phone with, with lawyers the whole day. Exactly. All right, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Just been an extraordinary story there. Dan Ives, Managing Director, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities, kind of giving us some of the latest here. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're streaming live here on uh, at uh, YouTube as well, so check us out there. Um, so, Bailey, it's a time of year where strategists and people in the money management business start thinking about next year, you know, and a lot of folks even think of being farther out over the next three, five, ten years. One of those is Sinead Colton Grant. She is a global head of investor solutions uh, at a little financial institution known by the name of BNY Mellon. Uh, and she joins us here. Sinead, thanks so much for joining us here. I know you guys, uh, you've got a what you guys call capital markets assumptions. Kind of you guys look out across asset classes for a long period of time. What are you guys thinking about as you look out going forward? Because it's been a know it's been uh 2022 was a tough year and 2023 has been a little bit better but as you guys think ahead what what are some of your key themes well delighted to be here and yes so we have just published our 2024 capital market assumptions and these are really the risk and return assumptions that are intended to guide investors in how they develop long-term strategic asset allocations Um, So this is very different than something like a a 2024 outlook. This is much more long term in nature. Now, you referenced 2023 or rather the the poor market returns in 2022. Um, So last year when we published these uh, these expectations, 
our expected returns for several asset classes had moved considerably higher following those poor returns for particularly equities and bonds in 2022. Our outlook for 2024, or rather our expectations over 10 years, continue that theme, um, albeit at a slightly slower pace. And so a couple of themes that I wanted to, to really highlight. First of all, slowing inflation. Central bank tightening around the globe has really had the desired impact of, of taming inflation from the high single digits we were seeing to low to mid single digits in most developed market economies. But the last mile in getting inflation down to central bank targets is probably going to be the most difficult. And so built into these forecasts, we expect that central banks will begin to loosen policy soon. But we still expect that over the next 10 years, interest rates will settle at higher levels than we've seen in, in the last decade or so since the financial crisis. And those higher rates are one of the factors that drive our moderately higher return and volatility forecasts in 2024. And how do those, um, higher, oh, sorry. How do those higher rates well, impact the investment in terms of different asset classes and the interest in where people should be putting money to work? And, and great point. So I would say when we look across uh, the, the asset classes, first of all, U.S. equities, um, our expected return for U.S. equities really stand out among equity markets as being revised higher. Um, and that's across capitalizations. It's largely driven by our expectations that the U.S. economy will continue to outperform the rest of the developed world. Uh, the focus on innovation in the U.S. is a particular tailwind, um, specifically when we think about productivity gains related to AI. Um, and of course, higher rates means higher yields in bonds. And we think bonds will benefit not only because of higher current yields, um, but they're also going to benefit as the economy slows, uh, which is what we expect, a slowing, not an outright uh, recession in the near term. Sinead, uh, in 2022 in particular, that 60-40 portfolio really took a beating. There's just nowhere to hide here. How do you guys think about allocation here? I mean, presumably, you know, Alternative assets is also someplace you might consider. How do you think about all alternatives and, and, and as part of a portfolio? Well, it's, it's a great question. Um, and, and two points here. One, we all think about 60-40, um, but the 60-40 20 years ago was actually quite different and is quite different than what a, a straightforward public market exposure to 60-40 is today. And so that means that private markets become a much more important part of your portfolio um, and also alternatives to really help with, with diversification. The thing that we often don't talk about when we use the shorthand of 60-40 is, you know, even look at the number of public companies in the US at the end of the 90s. It was close to 8,000. Today, it's less than 4,000. So companies are staying private for longer. And it means that if you don't have that private market exposure, um, you are losing out on the ultra high growth phase um, where companies are going public. A lot of the high, uh, the household names that we would think about in the in recent years that went public, they were already large cap stocks by the, the time they came to the market. So if you don't have that private market exposure in your portfolio, you miss out on that completely. So I think that that's point number one in relation to, to 60-40. You need to think broader, probably somewhere in the region of a 20 to 25 percent allocation to private markets and alternatives, depending on your, um, your risk tolerance. Um, but the second point is that actually um, over the next 10 years, Purely from an index-only perspective, we expect a 6.4% expected return over 
uh, the next decade or so for that public market only 60-40 portfolio. Um, that's because we see a moderately higher return in a number of equity markets um, and also those higher uh, fixed income expected returns given the, the starting point of yields. And looking at AI obviously being the theme of the year, does AI have to work to drive markets higher, especially equity markets, when you're looking at what we've seen from the likes of NVIDIA and Microsoft in terms of sheer market cap being added this year? Well, look, clearly it is not the only driver, but there's been a huge amount of excitement about the technology this year. What we think is really interesting when we look ahead, and and similar to um, if we think about the uh, the advent of the internet, um, and we go back and think about dot-com. Look, we, there's a lot we don't know about exactly how this will evolve, but what we can say is that AI has the potential to significantly impact global GDP and global inflation over the next decade. What we're looking at near term is an early promise to automate some tasks, but really the full extent of its impact on productivity, global growth, disinflation, um, we haven't seen it yet. But our sense is that in over the next 10 years, we're going to see astounding progress. Um, we'll see a lot of new jobs created, uh, new products and services that, that really haven't been invented yet. Right. And in the context of a broadly declining population in an economy, increased productivity is critical to support ongoing economic growth. Right. Sinead, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your insights here. Sinead Colton-Grant, she's a global head of investor solutions at BNY Mellon. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk bonds. Let's talk risk. Ed Harrison joins us. He's a senior editor at Bloomberg News uh, and author of Everything Risk a Column. So check that out. And Liz McCormick, chief correspondent of Macro Markets at Bloomberg News. Both of those folks join us. Ed here is in studio. Liz is joining us via Zoom. And I want to start with you because I got a problem, my friend. You got your latest uh, note out, your latest opinion piece evokes 1999. I was there, dude. And 2000 was there. It's just not good. That whole bursting of the bubble although I did top tick the market, signed my contract with Credit Suisse First Boston, February of 2000, Ooh. boom, <laughs> top ticked it. Three weeks later, the world came to an end, I didn't care. Um, so Ed, you talk about markets and bubbles bursting. How do you kind of feel like we are right now as we head into 2024? Yeah, I think that we're, uh, it's a good question because I think we're at a point where uh, if things get a little more exciting, they could be too exciting. Okay. And I think it's interesting that we're talking about this on the day that NVIDIA is right. reporting. Because, I mean, is that not the, the, the company that sort of yep. tells you whether or not it's going to be exciting or not? Because if NVIDIA is able to continue to uh, outperform and therefore uh, the stock goes higher, that tells you what the sentiment is. Yep. Well, with that in mind, I guess, are you in the camp of this is a market driven by seven plus three stocks and how does that impact kind of your view of risk more broadly speaking given every time i pull up a gp on the s p or nasdaq 100 it seems everything's rosy but not so much under the surface yeah well you know the interesting bit is how the russell 2000 actually responded recently as we've gone up i mean all of this was driven by rates and from where i can sit and that says that you know rates went down 
uh, everything went up because of the potential for a, a soft landing. It's interesting when you say seven plus three, like, you know, I'm thinking about the Magnificent Seven. It used to have Ooh. Netflix in there. Do you remember like yeah, two sure. years ago, Netflix was ejected and Why? yet they nice. continue to go higher. So what it tells you is, is, is that as long as the economy holds uh, and these companies can keep their margins going, we still have the potential for the rally to continue higher. The hope, however, is, is that it doesn't go into 2000 mode, you know, so, we, uh, that, so that we don't get that sort of uh, negative reaction on the backside of that. All right, Liz, uh, you're coming to us from what I call the yellow room. So great paint job there. <laughs> um, what's the bond market telling us here about where we are kind of in the cycle? It seems like we've seen maybe peak rates. What are you seeing in the bond market? Yeah, so I'm going to get to that. Just kind of getting my head around. Just Menton could marry the one of the McCormick kids I if I need it in a pinch. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the bond market. So it seems like, in you know, I hate to go with consensus because uh, you know we know what happened with the consensus going into this year. But definitely, most of Wall Street thinks, and I don't think that's a bad call. That you know we've seen the peak in rates. Like someone was saying, getting the. The 10 year note or all, remember, we had almost fives all across the curve uh, that happening again is a very high bar, right? Because most likely the Fed is done. Um, but I think the bond market is saying the worst is over. How fast rates go down is an open question, right? Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, into next year, even people saying the Fed's going to cut. You know, Rich Miller in uh, Washington was saying some smart stuff earlier to me and some others that you know, the question is, if the Fed starts cutting, why? You know, are they cutting for these kind of, call it technical, just to so rates don't get too restrictive if inflation goes down, or if the economy is doing very poorly and they have to cut quickly then, and a lot, that, that's a, the bigger juice for the bond market. So I think just how far yields can go, the shape of the yield curve, most people see steepening, you know, that's gonna be a yet to be seen because, you know, this, you know, recession we, everyone thought was coming this year didn't pan out. So we'll see what happens next year. I, you know, Liz, I try to avoid, you know, these treasury auctions because there are a lot of smart people like you and uh, Ira Jersey that do focus on them. But what have you learned from some of the recent auctions out there? Is our treasury refunding working? Well, yeah, I mean, so the 20 year, which to be honest, is all has always been like the lame duck here or the, yep. the, the problem child that is for Treasury. Uh, that didn't go so bad yesterday and people were worried about that. We did have a 30 year recently after the refunding, even though they cut, you know, they didn't increase it as much. So the size wasn't as big, didn't go well. But people, somebody was saying, and I think they're right, like, you know, we've seen so much volatility in rates to see a poor auction. You know, it was not surprising. I mean, it was terrible. They had a huge tail. But I think, you know, you know, Treasury's getting their paper done. You know, we'll see. We've gotten through the new issues of the refunding stuff. So, you know, now it's going to be just the kind of regular monthly and then the reopening. So I don't know. I think if volatility can calm down, then in general, the auctions can go a little better. Ed, is the market right now built on those Fed cuts actually playing out? Because I remember six months ago, we were talking about cuts in 23. And now we're lining up cuts starting in the second half. You know, it, it's, it's hard to say what's going on, to be honest, because, you know, people talk about uh, paying more for um, uh, for longer maturity bonds, you know, term premium not in there. We have 100 basis points of differential between the front of the curve and the 10 year, you know, 50 between the two year and the 10 year. 
And so, you know, the market it, it isn't telling a very consistent story because I think Liz, what she was pointing out is, is there are two ways to look at it. One is uh, that inflation comes down and the Fed says, OK, real yields are, are high. Therefore, we, we have room to, to bring it down or we fall into a recession and we get those cuts. I think, we, you know, some people are saying basically the cuts that are priced in are sort of a mix between those two scenarios. Uh, scenario one might give you a cut or two at the end of the year. The other scenario could give you six, seven cuts. You know, that's the, the sort of like the 2000 episode that we're talking about where the Fed just has to go to town and, and, and cut more. And so we're sort of somewhere in the middle and it's hard to say what the, the market is exactly telling us. Ed, do you think the, uh, the Fed risk kind of I don't know, going too far, staying high too longer, and, and pushing this economy into a recession. What are you hearing out there? Well, I think that uh, a, a, a softish landing is not terrible from everything that I've heard that Jerome Powell said. And, you know, if you think about the numbers that they've been putting out for the last six months, I think it's, the, you know, the summary of economic projections in September and then in June, basically the numbers that they put out if you back out where we are in the unemployment rate, it suggests a mild recession, even though, of course, he, he says and the Fed economists say they don't expect a recession. But if you had a mild recession, I think that no one would be, uh, they'd be nonplussed. I mean, because that takes the risk off the table of, you know, just hyperextending a, into a bubble and then crashing down. Liz, looking at FOMC minutes later today, somewhat dated at this point, just based on more recent data, what do you have your eye on from these minutes and what could be driving the market in the days and weeks to come? Yeah, so it's definitely dated, especially as long rates, which, you know, were one of the reasons why financial conditions had tightened, have come down a lot, so they've eased. But I, I'd like to see in the minutes, like, how confident policymakers were that, you know, or not, that policy was sufficiently restrictive, right? Which Powell had said in the presser, he thought we were. Um, but, you know, that might kind of give an inkling of, you know, if that was kind of just a squishy consensus or not. Um, again, the bar, the bar seems high for them to hike again, but given, given the backdrop of easing financial conditions since the meeting happened, I'm just really looking to see how much they thought conditions were tightened and was it all about long rates because a lot of that is reversed and what that might mean for the future policy. Ed, you've got your everything risk column out there. What's your biggest risk that you think the market uh, needs to really be cognizant of going forward? I think the, the risk is the risk of credit uh, adding to some downside risk uh, in 2024 because uh, we've done a really good job in 2023 of keeping those credit spreads tight. But, you know, we have all the, uh, the commercial property. We've got, uh, you know, some uh, bankruptcies bubbling up. And we have a decent number of bonds coming to market for refinancing in 2024. That sets up the potential that uh, you know, credit is 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 front and center in 2024 in a way that it hasn't been in this entire cycle. Right, because we really haven't seen. I mean, I guess it's from all that stimulus money we had at the beginning of the pandemic, but that's going to play out. If you think about the pandemic, was there any credit stress yeah. except for March 2020? I mean, we yep. really haven't seen it. We saw it with shale oil in 2015, 16, but really, 
we, we, we've not had a, a bout of credit stress in a very long time. Good stuff. All right, Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Ed Harrison, senior editor at Bloomberg News and author of the Everything Risk column, uh, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio and joining us via Zoom, Liz McCormick, chief correspondent of Macro Advisors at Bloomberg News, a little roundtable of what's out there in terms of risk out there in those markets. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Man, what a story here. Binance founder Changpeng Zhao agrees to step down, plead guilty. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Just another crypto exchange after FTX uh, going down and uh, just extraordinary. Let's break it down a little bit with somebody who's really into this business. Uh, Matt Siegel, uh, he's over at Van Eck, and we talked to Matt a lot about crypto. Matt, I, mean, I know they were investigating Binance and, and, and um, Mr. Zhao for a while, but I mean, this is a, a leading exchange here. Uh, what do you make of this? Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it is a big deal. Uh, Binance is, you know, the largest spot crypto exchange by uh, by some size. But we've been seeing all year that Binance has been losing share as uh, investors have been anticipating uh, some type of enforcement actions. We see this every cycle. Old main characters in crypto retire or get arrested. New main characters uh, emerge. Um, you know, you can see Coinbase kind of acting well on this news. Uh, probably bullish for for Coin. Yeah, I was going to ask. So, who are the winners? As you mentioned, uh, Coinbase right now little changed on the day. Bitcoin actually briefly turned positive. Like, what is the read across to other tokens to other exchanges on this news? I think it's a continuation of the trend we've seen this year, which is Coinbase picking up market share because they are the closest thing to a regulated entity uh, inside the U.S. given their custody solution, uh, and that's despite the fact that you know the SEC has sued has sued Coinbase as well for uh, selling unregistered securities. Uh, but I think the most important thing here is that, uh, according to the news reports, at least Binance will uh, continue to be able to operate. Uh, so this should not have any uh, dramatic impact on the market, on anyone's coin holdings. Uh, it'll probably be a gradual market share loss uh, as the story plays out. Hey, Matt, as someone here, I'm just speaking to myself, you know, don't have a lot of experience in the crypto space. But it, when I see leading exchanges run into these legal problems and the executives run into these legal problems. I'm just like, this is the Wild West. Why would I even pay attention to this? Can you give us a sense of how much of a concern that is for people in the crypto space that, man, this looks bad? The main use case or one of the main use cases of digital assets is the ability to custody them yourself in 
cold storage. Uh, when you hand over your keys to an exchange and leave your keys uh, on an exchange, by definition, they are going to hold your coins, uh, settle the trade, clear the trade. Uh, the whole stack is condensed into one. You know, that can be a very efficient way of doing business. It's just doesn't have a ton of regulatory clarity here in the U.S. But when your uh, bank is failing over a weekend, uh, you're pretty happy to be able to move your you know, dollar stable coins onto an exchange and monetize them, which you can't do uh, during a bank run. So there's some inherent advantages to this tech as well, though you note the risks. Matt, $4.3 billion is, uh, according to the journal, what they will be paying, and CZ will retain his majority ownership in Binance either of those that number in that update surprising at all it's a large number but uh the sec claimed in the kraken lawsuit yesterday that kraken made 43 billion dollars in 2020 and 2021 so uh presumably cz has negotiated this settlement and, and can afford it uh finance will continue to operate Wow, just an amazing story, amazing development in the world of crypto. So uh, stay on top of that. Uh, again, Matt Siegel, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate getting you to hop on this and give us your thoughts here. Again, uh, Binance founder uh, Chang Peng Zhao agrees to step down and plead guilty. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.